This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Uh, we welcome you this hour to the Bible Line, whether you are listening locally here at 88.7 FM or through the internet at wagp.net. You can hear us 24-7 around the world, and many people don't know that. So wagp.net live streams uh, across the world, and in many countries of the world, there is no Christian radio, even north of us. Uh, it's been outlawed for three decades in Canada, no Christian radio, so we have a lot of Canadian listeners and the like. In either case, for the next hour, we will be taking your questions. If there's a specific issue that you're trying to get biblical help or discernment or application on, if we can be of help, again, there are several ways you can contact us. The local 843 South Carolina Exchange is simply 525-1859 or you can email us here directly into the studio. The email address is w, uh, TBL, that stands for the Bible line at WAGP.net. Well, with that said, uh, let's go ahead and we'll get started this morning. Walter, what do we have first? All right, Pastor Carl, our first question comes in as anonymous out of Savannah, Georgia. They write, hi, Dr. Brogy. First, let me say I truly appreciate your ministry. I have a question. And I know it may sound silly to some, but I'm curious. There have been recent news reports of UFO crashes in Las Vegas with two large non-human creatures seen at the crash site. I am aware that some people believe that there is life on other planets. I do not agree with this. I feel what people are seeing is some type of demonic activity. Also, I remember that Jam Arkell did a segment on aliens and basically said something along the lines, as the government setting up a scenario, releasing documents on UFO sightings to explain away the rapture to people that are left behind. Can you share your opinion on this? Thank you for addressing my question. Well, I don't think the government's smart enough to uh, anticipate the doctrine of the rapture and therefore to say that when the church is gone, that the explanation will be UFOs. With that said, your question is a pertinent one. It's really twofold. Is there life on other planets? And how do we explain the UFOs and so forth? So I've just opened my Bible to... Genesis, the opening chapter, and it says, um, and it under and underscores, uh, among other things, uh, the, that the only place that life exists is here on planet Earth. Uh, there was evening, there was morning, the third day, then God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be signs, and for seasons, and for days and years, and let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He made the stars also. God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth and to govern the day and the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God said it was good. So there's a number of reasons given why God created even the planets above, and it's not for alien life. It says for signs, seasons, days, and years. 
uh, tomorrow night at Community Bible Church, we have a special speaker. Uh, he's from an organization, a Hope for Israel, and I asked him to come. He's a Jewish believer, a completed Jew, and I asked him to speak on the subject of uh, the prophetic significance of the fall feasts. There are seven feasts in Israel's history, uh, four that have been completed and fulfilled prophetically in the first coming of Christ, the second three in the second coming of Christ. Now, I don't know how, if you'll get into this detail or not, but when the Jewish people would isolate the time for a particular calendar event, these festivals, they would look to the stars, the sun, the moon, and the moon schedule, the lunar schedule is what tipped them off. Oh, yes, this is the time for this and so forth. And this was ever before we had all the NASA uh, calendar abilities that you know people can use today. So God used it, among other reasons, to give them wisdom. And that's why many of these um, events don't happen at the exact same time, like Christmas we celebrate on December the 24th. So first, God gave the planets around us and the moon and so forth, the sun, to communicate, uh, to shout to give man even a calendar of event for seasons and other things. There's a second reason, and let me read. I just turned to Psalm 19. The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanses declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech. There are no words. Uh, Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their utterances to the ends of the earth. In them, he has placed a tent for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. Its rising is from one end of the uh, heavens and its circuit to the other end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. We have that whole sum posted on a wall in our home. And again, it's underscoring the fact that uh, God made the heavens and the earth to testify to man of his glory. So beyond the reasons given in Genesis 1 of communication, it's a testimony to man concerning the glory of God. You know, no man can say, is there a God, does God exist? Because as Psalm 19, as Romans 1 reminds us, the heavens are declaring of God's glory. God's fingerprints are all over it that he made. In Psalm 8, uh, he reminds us, um, by the way, if you have children and they're not involved in children's choirs, uh, we have a tremendous children's choir program that just started up again in the fall. And this is one of the psalms that the children remember. It's a memorized psalm, a very, very important psalm. And we read here in Psalm 8, when I consider your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained. What is man that you should take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you've made him a little lower than God and you crown him with glory and majesty. Now listen to verse six. And again, our kids memorize this. And uh, this is a part of our Wednesday night program. The adults typically are in Bible study and we have a prayer time. But the children are not only memorizing godly music. Listen, I, I see my grandkids, they they come to Vacation Bible School and just reminded me of what our children experienced growing up. And, you know, all week long, they're singing these songs that they learned. And not only do they sing songs that they learned, they, rescri- they recite scripture that they've memorized. And so he says in verse 6, You made him, man, to rule over all the works of your hands, and you've put them under his feet. So the fact that God makes man rule 
uh, and not some alien, but God makes man on earth to rule underscores the fact that there's not life on other planets. Let me give you another reason. And if you're with me, when I did a series called God's Prophetic Schedule, um, it was 31 messages. And if you remember in the prophetic schedule, we see that the Lord Jesus reigns for a thousand years on the earth. And then in the book of Revelation, John will say, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Why? For the first heaven and the first earth has passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, and he's made it ready as a bride adorned for her husband. Peter, likewise, let me just turn over to Second Peter. He makes this statement in Second Peter chapter 3, but by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men. So again, he's affirming uh, what John will later write. John will see the current heaven and the current earth just gone, and he sees a new heaven and a new earth. This is not a a refurbishment job, as some uh, prophecy teachers have said. It's brand spanking new. And so he reminds us, Peter, do not let this one fact escape your notice that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord, prophetically speaking, is not a single 24-hour day, but a period of time that begins with the tribulation period, goes all the way through the millennial reign, and then it gets dark, it patterns, patterns a biblical day at the end of the millennium. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat. The earth and its works will be burned up. So the very fact that this universe that you see all around us will come to an end underscores the fact that there's not life on other planets. And so the events on earth dictate clearly the beginning and end as it relates to man, not to some aliens. Now, with that said, there's another question we need to ask. Does it mean we're alone in the universe? And clearly, if you know your Bible, we're not alone. Uh, There is a war that is raging in the heavenly places. Most of it is invisible. You do not see it. Uh, If you want a good picture, go to Daniel chapter 10, where you see holy angels warring with evil angels. Paul underscores this in Ephesians 6, that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and evil forces that are at work in heavenly places. So when we speak of uh, unidentified flying objects, or the government uses this new term, unidentified aerial phenomena, um, what does it mean? Well, I think in some cases it's a sheer hoax, Uh, Maybe inspired by Satan to create fear in the hearts of man. There was a famous radio broadcast that was done in the 1930s by Orson Welles. Um, You can still listen to the broadcast, but when, you know, the radio is what Americans huddled around the way they huddle around a television at night. And the Mercury Theater, I think it was called, uh, came out once a week. And he created this uh, scenario where we were being invaded by men from Mars. And it terrified, literally, millions of Americans. They thought it was true. He made it like it was happening and unfolding, uh, you know, live. 
And of course, they actually had to pass a law against that. Now, Orson Welles is not too well known today, except for maybe his part in Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer as the um, man speaking in the background. But that was a hoax. That's all it was. And there's no doubt hoaxes, some that man creates, some maybe that are inspired by, by Satan to create fear. So, but what I do find interesting is that in 1947, is Israel is seeking establishment as a nation. It happens officially on May the 14th, 1948. As that is unfolding, uh, for the first time, we see more and more of these UFOs, so to speak, and it increases. Why would it increase? Because I think, among other reasons, um, Satan's realm recognized that with Israel back in the land officially as a nation, that we are in the final, final time frame. No one knows the day or the hour. Remember, the second coming of Christ is a prophetically driven event. The rapture of the church is momentary. And so for Israel to be seeking statehood, and Satan didn't know if that would happen like after the rapture, or but, but the fact that they were seeking statehood, that they would become a nation. Remember, Isaiah asked, can a, a people become a nation in a single day? And the answer is yes. And that's what happened to Israel. He knew that we were in the final time frame. And of course, God has done incredible things. I left Israel yesterday, and I left a place where there were over 7.2 million Jews, forget Arabs, 7.2 million Jews who are living in the confines of Israel. It's absolutely incredible. The miracle that God has done is he's regathered these Jewish people from across the world and has brought them back into the land. With all that said, Satan, not knowing the day or the hour, nonetheless, he knew we were in the final time frame. And I think as he has seen Israel's prominence become more and more profound, he's increased some of this activity. So I think what we may see happen, apart from hoaxes, apart from man-made things, apart from maybe a drone that someone thought was a UFO, there is real... Uh, phenomena that's happening in the skies above that pilots and others have witnessed in which there is no human explanation. And I would postulate, as I have been for 25 years when I'm asked this question about UFOs, that it's the demonic realm that is at work. Because I think when the rapture of the church happens and millions of people are gone, there's going to have to be an explanation as to what happened. How are you going to account for however many million, 100 million, 200 million, 500 million, only God knows the real number of those that are born again, and suddenly they're gone, which will create disaster in and of itself. How will you explain it? And I think what they will use is UFOs. And I think the fact that the government certainly has released some information because they have no choice. You've got these Navy, Air Force, Marine pilots who are giving explanations of things that they're seeing. They're being interviewed on uh, with major networks across the world. And so they have to release something. They can't sit on their hands. You have government officials who are pressuring some of this classified material to come out. I think in God's providential timing, this will be the explanation that will be used. Oh, they were swept away by aliens. They weren't swept away by aliens. They were caught up to meet the Lord in the air, but that will be the human rational explanation as to the rapture, which 
the Antichrist will need because he's going to present, present himself as Messiah. And so he'll need an explanation as to why all these people are gone. So it's a great question that is coming, and it's one that Christians should ask about. There is no life on other planets. The Bible is clear, but we're not alone in the universe. There's evil forces that are at work in the heavenly places. We just don't see them. Um, good question. Let's go to the next one. All right, 843-525-1859. Again, that's 843-525-1859 if you have a question for Pastor Carl on today's Bible line. Let's go to the phone lines, Pastor Carl. I believe we have Stephanie from Portland, Oregon. Good morning, Stephanie. You are live with Pastor Carl. Hi. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I wrote out my question so I don't get so rambly and weird like normal. So um, here's my question. Uh, it's Thomas related. And John eleven sixteen made me think of it. Since Thomas's faithlessness didn't disqualify him from being in Jesus's inner circle, then what word do you have for all of us present-day Thomases who have great love for our Savior, even into death, but we're the more pessimistic and we'll believe it when we see it types? Faith for supernatural works of the Holy Spirit doesn't flow easily for us, so how can we get more of that buoyancy that people with robust faith have? In light of current events, it's so hard for us, Thomas types, who get bogged down trying to understand and explain things according to how we think they're going to go, just like Thomas did in John eleven sixteen. It's a fantastic question that you asked, Stephanie, so let me see if I can respond. Now remember, at this point in the history of man, man is still under a different, different covenant. It's, uh, this is, you know, John 11 that you're mentioning and the resurrection of Lazarus uh, takes place, you know, just uh, uh, about two weeks before the actual crucifixion of Christ. So when you come to John 11, it seems, oh, we're only about halfway through the Gospel of John. But the majority of the Gospels is dedicated to the last week of Christ's life, and rightly so, because it's in the last week of uh, the life of the Messiah when he was here on the earth that he would be carefully examined by his enemies, just like when the uh, shepherds would bring on Palm Sunday, as we call it, based on what took place in the Mount of Olives as the pilgrims waved their their palms and he, Messiah came in on Sunday. Uh, all week long, he's being examined by the enemies, the Herodians, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the scribes, and so forth. And of course, they can find no guilt in him. And so... Um, Remember, I say all that to say the new covenant has not yet been initiated, meaning man has not yet been born again. Man has not yet become a temple of the Holy Spirit. So there's a hardness to man's heart, and there's a lack of understanding that under the old age, man does not have. Uh, that doesn't mean that there's not accountability and that Thomas could not have believed some of these things. But it does mean it's just like King David had five wives. Joseph only had one. David is still called a man after God's own heart. David today, under New Covenant terms, would not even be considered a believer. Because under the New Covenant, which is initiated through the death of Christ, it had not yet taken place here in John 11. And remember, it's in that upper room that Jesus said, I'm presenting to you a new covenant, the covenant that will be initiated through my blood. This is what the, the Spirit of God wrote about in passages like uh, Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel and so forth, 33 and so forth, where God would take a heart of stone and make it soft and pliable. 
And that's why Jesus could say there is never a person born of a woman greater than John, meaning John the Baptist, but the person who's least in the kingdom is greater than John. Why? Because though John had a unique relationship with the Spirit of God, there's only about 500 Old Testament believers who have a special relationship with the Holy Spirit nonetheless, and maybe his the most special in that he's even filled with the Holy Spirit when he's in his mother's womb, yet he never lived to see the promise of the Father, the promise of the new covenant, because he dies prior to Pentecost. So that helps me, A, to understand part of Thomas's reaction. Uh, but B, remember, faith comes from hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And so now on this side of Pentecost, we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, who's called our helper, our teacher. And a lot of the doubts that born-again believers have today comes from a lack of knowledge of Scripture. And so what is it that uh, clears doubts up? What is it that gives clarity of thought to the mind? The Word of God. People, even Christian people, are looking around, and they're all tied up in knots over the world. I was listening to someone coming in today, obviously an unbeliever, but he was explaining what he sees happening in American cities, and uh, he says, I have a great concern for the kind of world that my children and my grandchildren are going to inherit. He's tied up in knots because he doesn't know the Lord in much less the Bible. And so while it looks like the world is falling apart, it's actually coming together because of God's final prophetic plan that is being fulfilled. And so what you should do, Stephanie, when you have doubts, so to speak, is you want to go to Scripture and find out, well, God, what do you say about this particular subject? and begin to study the Word of God as it relates to that specific subject. I was speaking with someone not that long ago who was tied up with worry. And I said, well, you just don't overcome worry by thinking positive. You, you have to go back and think about what Scripture says concerning worry and why it is that we shouldn't worry. And you have to renew your mind. And that's where Scripture meditation plays a critical, critical role. And so Thomas, one of the 12 called Didymus, he was a twin, um, reading now from John 20, uh, and this is resurrection, um, a one week past resurrection, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, this is resurrection night, we've seen the Lord. And he said, unless I see his hands in the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. After eight days, so this is the following Sunday, his disciples, again, the way the Jews measure a day, so it's the following Sunday, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut. All the doors are shut. They're in fear still, and yet Jesus suddenly appears in the room. Why? Because he can walk through walls in his resurrection body, which tells us of some future capacities that we'll have because our body will be made in his likeness. And uh, he walks in, and he's inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Shalom shalakam, which is what you'd want to hear if someone suddenly showed up inside of a room. And he said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger and see my hands, and reach here with your hand and put it in my side, and do not be unbelieving, but believing. That's what we need. We need to be believing. Thomas answered and said, my Lord and my God. 
Uh, he was in worship. He f- had fallen prostrate um, before the Lord. And um, so here he is. He's, he's prostrate before the Lord, and he's in worship. And Jesus receives that worship. We were speaking in Israel last week, and believe it or not, there is Jehovah's Witness and Mormons that go to Israel to see some of the places. And, and of course, I was reminding our tour guide that those Jehovah's Witness and those Mormons do not believe what we believe. They use the same terminology when it comes to describing Jesus. They'll call him the Savior, but they use a different dictionary to define those terms. And someone asked me, who is a part of our tour, um, Pastor Carl, you know, what, what do you say? Because I have, I think it was her sister-in-law, who's a JW, and and she tries to convince me that they basically believe what we believe. I said, you ask them one question. Do you worship Jesus Christ? Do you worship him? And every honest Jehovah's Witness will say, no, we do not worship him. And then you can remind them that you therefore do not believe the same Jesus that we believe in. Because Jesus, unlike Paul, when they try to worship him and Barnabas and Peter, don't worship us, we're just men. Jesus receives worship, whether it's Thomas or whether it's the two women in the garden, he receives worship, and in Revelation 5, all of heaven is worshiping him. And so he fell down and he worshiped, and he said, my, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are those who do not see and yet believe. So how do you believe without seeing, which is, the, which is really the, the, the crux of your question? And the answer is through the study of God's word. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of God. As a relatively new Christian, saved less than two years, I went to um, a place in Colorado where I studied the book of Romans for an entire month. And then when I came back, I took all those notes, and for the next year, I studied the book of Romans. And though I knew the Bible to be the word of God, every person does, and that it's alive, it's sharper than a two-edged sword, when I worked through an entire book of the Bible, verse by verse, phrase by phrase, I was just in awe. I thought no one, no one could have ever thought this book up. And my faith grew. And faith is like a muscle, it grows. And when you obey what you know, you grow. But the problem is, is more and more people today don't know much. And so, you know, we had people about half the trip that came with us to Israel who were from other states. And some were sharing with me, you know, the life change that has taken place because they're learning what the Bible says. I'm, I'm beginning this Lord's Day to teach a whole new book of the Bible. And we'll go through it chapter by chapter and verse by verse. And God willing, by the time when we're done, we as a congregation will know that book of the Bible. When you hear that particular book, your mind won't go blank you'll be able to put it together in your mind. And when you begin to study the scripture in that way, we might call it scripture meditation. And uh, I'm beginning a new series starting on the 20th of September on the role of the Bible in the life of the Christian. You might want to listen to that series. We live stream it on Wednesday nights. That will start on the 20th. This Wednesday, we're doing a special presentation again with a person from Jerusalem, uh, Hope for Israel. Um, but that's what's going to alleviate these doubts. And so you might even step back and say, well, where am I all wrangled and caught up? Where do I fight these issues? 
and that's a section or a portion of Scripture or a book of the Bible that you want to turn to, and it will change your life. Great question. Let's go to the next. All right, 843-525-1859 if you have a question for Pastor Carl this morning. Our next question, Pastor Carl, comes from Pierce out of Atlanta, Georgia. He writes, Let me start off by saying a friend of mine who lives in Savannah introduced me to your ministry, and it has been a tremendous blessing for my life. Some of the topics you have answered in your sermons and on the Bible line have been in areas I was wanting to understand further and has helped me to develop my faith to deeper levels. Now to my question. You often refer to N.T. Wright as N.T. Wrong. Being a newer believer to the program and not extensively familiar with N.T. Wright's work, I was curious of why it is that you refer to him in this manner. Our church recently started a series on Romans, and the pastor recommended N.T. Wright's Guide to Romans as a complement to our series. I was curious if the problems with N.T. Wright's theology extend to all works or if certain publications raise more red flags than others. All right, so if you think about the book of Romans, it divides into three sections. One through eight is the doctrinal section. Nine through 11 is the national section. And then 12 through the end of the book, chapter 16, is the applicational section. In 1 through 8, he deals with three great doctrines, the doctrine of condemnation, and he takes all of humanity apart. And he shows that no matter who you are, whether you are a pagan that is involved in idolatry, whether you are an upright religious man, or whether you are a descendant of Abraham, a Jewish person, all men are guilty that no one can claim uh, ignorance about, no one can claim innocence before God because no one can claim ignorance about God. That all people, whether it's the pagan Gentile that has, as he'll argue in Romans 1, as we just read from Psalm 19, the heavens that declare the glory of God, or whether it's the uh, religious man who has a conscience within, or whether it's the Jewish people who've been entrusted with the very law of God we all have information about God, and so no one can claim innocence. That's the doctrine of condemnation. The second doctrine, which is what N.T. Wrong is all balled up on, concerns the doctrine of justification. What is the doctrine of justification? Justification is when God no longer has something against you. He counts you acceptable. He counts you forgiven. He imputes righteousness. And to Abraham, Romans 4, he was counted as righteous. He was imputed righteousness. Righteousness is when God not only wipes the slate clean. Again, sometimes people say, well, justification is just as if you never sinned. That's only half the definition. It's much more than that. It's just as if you had always obeyed. And so there's a great exchange that takes place. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. He, the Father, made Jesus the Son, who had never sinned, to become sin on our behalf. When does that happen? When he's on the cross. He himself bores our, uh, our sin in his own body on the cross. He becomes the receptacle of the sin of all time, past, present, and future, such that when you come by faith, which is what the context is arguing, when you believe in Jesus, you are credited with Christ's righteousness. So God not only wipes the slate clean, he counts you as holy. And that's why the most inconsistent Christians in the New Testament are called saints of God. And so this is important because N.T. Wright, Nicholas Thomas Wright, 
I have his three-volume series, and he's very confused. He would make a better Roman Catholic than he would a, a Protestant. Again, he's an Anglican, a British New Testament scholar, and he writes on a popular level, which a lot of scholars don't. A lot of scholars, you know, and then I'm talking about real scholars in terms of Bible-believing scholars. They, they know what they believe, and they're a great asset to the body of Christ, but those people who are going to use their material are going to have to dissect it and uh, communicate it on a level where we all can understand it, and that, that's important. But So he does that. He communicates on what we call a popular level which makes him very inviting to people. But N.T. Wright basically says, and I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing him uh, from his own works, that you cannot say that Paul taught that there's a point in time when you are justified, when you are given this righteousness that comes directly from God. And he uses some interesting terminology, um, but he basically says the language of the law court, which is what Christians have argued for 2,000 years, is not in view, that righteousness is not some, like, gaseous subject that, you know, falls on you, and that you can't really know that you're righteous until uh, you meet God in heaven. That's Roman Catholic theology. That stinks. That's why I call him N.T. wrong, and it's certainly not what the Apostle Paul believed. Um, to say that the doctrine of justification doesn't flow from the pen of the Apostle Paul such that in a moment's time you can be considered righteous is contrary not only to the thrust of the doctrinal section of the book of Romans, but to all of Paul's letters and to what we read in the Acts. I just turned to Acts 13 and a clear example of how wrong he is, and he wrong. I'm not making fun of him, but I am underscoring he's wrong. Why do I want people to think he's wrong? Because he's wrong. And to say to people that, you know, and, and again, he doesn't deny that Jesus is God. He doesn't deny that Jesus literally physically was, you know, put in a tomb and on the third day was raised from the dead, but neither do Roman Catholics. Roman Catholics don't deny that. But Roman Catholics preach another Christ. They do not teach justification by grace alone, through faith alone, based on Christ alone, revealed in Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. Those five solas of the Reformation are on a stained glass window behind me every week that people see. And on the front of my pulpit pulpit are the words sola scriptura. Scripture alone is very clear that justification happens at the moment of faith. And so Paul here in Acts 13 said, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, speaking of Jesus, the God-man, forgiveness of sins is, uh, excuse me, through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is justified from everything from which you should not be justified by the law of Moses. That's a paraphrase. I'm just kind of paraphrasing it there in terms of what Paul is saying. But let me read it word for word for word here in Acts 13. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him, through Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and through him, everyone who believes is freed from all things, from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. So Jews, you know, wanted to be justified. They wanted to be made right. And he's reminding them that the function of the law, as he will argue in Romans 7, is not to justify you, it's to terrify you. It's to show that you're guilty. 
uh, in the words that he uses in the book of Galatians. It's like a schoolmaster, like a teacher, an instructor to lead you to faith. When you look into the law, just like when you look into a mirror, when you look into a mirror, you might see your face is dirty. When you look into the law, you see your soul is dirty, that you need someone to save you. And that justification happens the moment you believe. That's what he says. You're freed from all things. That's the promise that he gives. And literally, if you have the New American Standard with marginal notes, and that's why I paraphrased it, you are justified, literally. I think they should go with the literal rendering here. Um, And it might be especially helpful when you have someone like N.T. Wright. And so N.T. Wright said that the church, at least since the time of the Protestant Reformation, had Paul misunderstood that you really cannot know that you're justified until you go to heaven. Are you telling me that the church fathers, are you telling me, N.T. Wright, that all the Protestant reformers had it wrong, that you will not know that you're justified um, until the day that you die and you meet God in heaven? That's absolutely insane. If it's new, it's not true. So, you know, I'm, I'm glad someone, they thought they were doing me a favor. She was a relatively new Christian at the time, and I wouldn't have bought the guy's works except maybe for illustration purposes and because it was such an issue, but I could go online and get portions of his works quoted. But I have, I have his vol- voluminous work and his new perspective work. And, you know, if unless I wanted to use it for something other than, you know, illustrations, I'd throw it in the wastebasket. He's a heretic. He's wrong. And I hope and pray that he will repent. Because unless you believe that you can be justified in this life, saved by grace alone, through faith alone, that's Roman Catholic theology. They teach you cannot know you're saved. Well, John will say these things I've written to you, believe in the name of the Son of God, in order that you might know that you have eternal life. Jesus affirms the doctrine of assurance of salvation. But if you um, can't know until you die, because in his definition of justification, it's becoming righteous through acts of obedience. And I don't know if he's frustrated over people who say they are Christians and their life doesn't change, but to twist the gospel and to muddy the gospel and to say that you cannot see yourself as righteous in the sight of God, which is the very basis for doing good works. I don't do good works to earn God's approval. I do good works because I have God's approval. I don't do good works to make God love me more. I do good works because he loves me unconditionally. In the high priestly prayer, Jesus affirms that he loves me as much as he loves his own son. And so this is fundamental And N.T. right is N.T. wrong. And a pastor who is, you know, waving his flag is either in ignorance or he's a heretic too. Look, as a general rule of thumb, if it's new, it's not true. And so that's what I would say. Good question. Let's go to the next one. All right, Pastor Carl, 843-525-1859. Our next question, Pastor Carl, comes in as a live dictation from Emmanuel out of Pennsylvania. It's a two-part question. Okay. Uh, His first question is about church discipline. When there is a sin in the church, what is the responsibility of the believer? And his second question says, please explain the importance of church membership. All right. uh, These are both... uh, questions from the realm of ecclesiology, and 
I'm going to be teaching a series, not before too long, on some of these very issues that you are addressing. And so church discipline, I know it seemingly is unheard of in the day that we live in, but it's actually something that that Jesus taught and we should affirm and we need to have our heads screwed on tight about. And so um, Jesus made it very clear that if your brother sins, you are to reprove him in quiet. And reprove him alone, and if he doesn't li- if he doesn't respond, you take two or three people with you, and if he doesn't respond, you bring it to the whole church, and this is what we typically refer to as the doctrine of church discipline. Uh, so I'm reading now from um, Matthew chapter 18. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. Now we're not to play junior Holy Spirit where we go around and pick out sins in people's lives as you let Scripture interpret Scripture, the kind of sin, for we all stumble in many ways. The one who says he has no sin makes God a liar, uh, John will say in 1 John 1. And so the kind of sin we're referring to is the kind of sin that would bring reproach in the name of Christ. So maybe you find out your confessed uh, brother in Christ or sister in Christ, say, is living immorally. And you know, wow, that's that's an awful thing. That will bring shame to the testimony of the assembly. Or, you know, maybe they were just tempted and got caught up and they're, you know, living in fornication or adultery with someone to whom they're not married. You go and you win that person in private. And many times that's all it takes. And they're heartbroken and they said, thank you that you loved me enough and cared for me enough. And you don't then pick up the phone and say, hey, you know, um, I knew something that you didn't and pray for so-and-so because he's repenting of his sin. Uh, that, that's gossip. But if your brother does not listen to you, take one or two more with you. And then he quotes Moses that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every fact be confirmed. And so Jesus now is underscoring the truth that sometimes it takes more than one person. And people have asked me, do we exercise church discipline at Community Bible Church? Yes. Uh, I've had to do it as a pastor over 50 times. And sometimes it doesn't uh, ever go past this second level. And I'm grateful for that. I remember one person in particular who was having a flirtatious, inappropriate relationship with another woman, and I confronted him on it, and I knew where it was going. And he said, oh, I'm sorry, Pastor, and I'll I'll clear this up. And only to find out from his wife, he didn't clear it up. So then I brought two other people with me and confronted him. And that's all it took. He saw that we were following the biblical steps of church discipline. You say, well, you know, was it embarrassment? I don't care what God uses to protect his home and his family and That brother later thanked me. He said, you know, the church I came from, they never would have done this because there's all kinds of uh, immorality and inconsistencies of a public nature that members are committing and they just look the other way. He said, I just want to thank you. You saved my marriage. And uh, I didn't save it. God did, but God used the steps that were outlined. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And sometimes we've had to do that. And typically at Community Bible Church, when we do this, we do it on a Wednesday night because that's when family is there. That's when the committed church that is able to 
uh, meet in the middle of the week because they're not at work or other children issues, whatever it might be. That's when we share that. And occasionally, it's happened at least three times, someone that went all the way through the process of it being brought to the church um, where they didn't listen. And so after a set date, if they don't listen, they are removed from the church. Why remove them? For several reasons. Number one, it protects the testimony of the church. People can't go around and say, hey, you know, you've got that member over there, your church, you you." self-righteous, holier-than-holy community Bible church people. And, you know, he's been shacking up with his girlfriend the last two months. You're a bunch of hypocrites. Our members can say, well, actually, he was removed from the membership of our church. He was? Yeah, he was. Why? Because we take Scripture seriously. And if someone is removed from the membership of the church, then it expresses integrity. One in the church, it protects the testimony that we really do believe and practice something, and Christ's name is not carried through the muck, and that person is removed from the protective umbrella of the local assembly. And so in 1 Corinthians 5, there is such a situation that Paul has to address with the Corinthians, and they were just kind of looking the other way, and he knew it. And he says to you, it's actually reported, and the word reported here is kaleo. It's the word we might say, it's broadcasted, meaning it's well known in the whole congregation that there is immorality among you, and immorality of such a kind as does not even exist amongst the Gentiles. And here the word Gentile is being used synonymously with, with, with pagans, specifically that someone has his father's wife. Paul is saying even pagans find this, at least at this time in human history, disgusting that you've got this man in your church who's sleeping with his stepmother. You've become arrogant and not mourned instead so that the one who has done this deed would be removed from your midst. That's following church discipline. And so Paul says, I'm not there physically, but since you're not going to do what God's called you to do in the name of our Lord Jesus when you're assembled, and I with you in spirit with the power of the Lord Jesus, I've decided to deliver such one over to Satan for the destruction of, of his spirit, that he might be saved in the day of our Lord Jesus. He recognizes that when someone is removed, if they're really saved, then heaven hears in a special way. Here's a congregation of people trying to honor the word of God. And they are saying, Lord, you see this person. He's a confessing member of the local assembly. We give him to you. We remove him in obedience to what you have said. And he has opened up to a form of spiritual battle that he might never have seen before. God sometimes allows the devil to do things. You know, God allowed the devil to do things to Job. Luther had it right when he said the devil is God's devil, means, meaning that the devil is on a leash. And I gave many illustrations of that when I preached through the book of Revelation. He can only do what God allows him to do. He doesn't have unlimited power as a created being. But he does have a lot of power, and we should respect it. And so when someone is brought uh, to the church and then removed, if they really know Jesus, they experience divine discipline. Those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. The writer of the Hebrews says in the 12th chapter, quoting Proverbs, but then he'll go on to say, if you're without discipline, you're illegitimate and not true sons. And so who should do this? Who should be involved in this process? Well, maybe you, if you're going in private, because you're aware of the situation. 
But if it doesn't work, then you go to the elders of your church. And here we read, brethren, even if anyone is caught up in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you will not be tempted. And so you who are spiritual, you who are mature, and that's typically seen as the elders of the church. And we know that based on James 5, where he addresses an issue. If any among you are sick, let him call for the elders of the church. And they anoint him with the oil. They set him apart again, and they pray over him. Why? Someone, when I was in Israel, we had one person with a, uh, actually a couple people who weren't doing real well physically. And this woman said, would you, you know, consider doing an anointing service? And I said, no, I won't. I'll pray for him, but I'm not going to do an anointing service and call these people together and anoint them with oil. One, the initiative must come from the individual. It's not someone, you know, a pastor or some faith healer going around the country and going to people to anoint them with oil. It's the individual in the local assembly who comes to the elders of the church. But I said, the context has nothing to do with what you're visibly seeing. The context is someone who's under church discipline. And they come to the elders of the church wishing to be restored. And so when we've restored people, and sometimes, again, some physical sickness is related to church discipline. There are many creative ways in which God can discipline a person. I saw a guy lose his company one time because he ended up making stupid, stupid decisions because he was out of fellowship with the Lord. And it was not until he lost nearly everything that he came to his senses and he repented. But some of you are weak, some of you are sick, some of you have died prematurely. Why? Because of unconfessed, unrepented sin in the heart. And it's in that scenario that James is addressing, and I have a whole sermon on it as I preach through every verse of the book of James. So um, you who are spiritual, and you don't go with a spirit like, this could never happen to me, Um, you know, looking to yourself lest you too be tempted, then you're tempting the devil to tempt you. You go in a spirit of gentleness and humility, but by God's grace, there go I as a fellow believer. So that's how it's to unfold, and it's important that it unfolds in that way and that it happens. The importance of church membership, this is one of the reasons. The word um, membership, it's used in the sense that we're members one of another, but certainly the Scripture is clear. There's an assumption in the New Testament that God's people are committed to a local fellowship, which is why the writer of the Hebrews can say, submit to your leaders and obey them. Look, if someone comes to Community Bible Church and, and I know them and maybe they're lesbian, maybe they're known as a drunk, a drug addict, and someone says to me, hey, you know, my, my friend, he's got a real alcohol problem. He gets wasted every weekend, but he came to church today. I'm not going to exercise church discipline on him. Why? Because he's not a member of the, of the local fellowship. Um, it's a non-issue. And to be a member of a local church, you have to be a member of the universal church, the body of Christ. So membership is a biblical concept. There's no such thing as floating Christians. And so there's a whole wave of churches on the West Coast, and they threw the baby, without the, bo- the, the baby out with the bathwater, and they said, we don't need membership. No, you do. It's a biblical concept. Who are you going to submit to, those who rule over you? There's a commitment to a local fellowship. You know, we don't let people who are not members serve at Community Bible Church. It's a non-issue. 
look, if they're not willing to obey the word of God and they want to live in disobedience, why would I want someone who's living in disobedience to serve in some capacity in the local fellowship? I would, and neither should any other local church. So anyway, we could spend a lot more time on it, but I hope that's helpful to you. Let's go to the next question. All right, Pastor, I believe we have time for one more. Our next question comes from Marianne. She asks, can you make a recommendation on a Bible and where you would purchase your Bible from? Well, uh, I don't know where Marianne is calling from. If you live locally, uh, come to Community Bible Church because we do, well, number one, if, if you come to Community Bible Church and you come to our Meet the Pastor meeting, you'll get a brand new Bible for free. If you go to purchase it, it's going to cost you, depending on the outlet, and uh, whether you're shopping through, you know, some Bible publisher or some book club or walking into a local uh, bookstore, though there are not many local Christian bookstores left, it's going to cost you somewhere between $75 and $100. Uh, you say you're wasting my tithe. I'm not wasting your tithe. I'm not giving it to you. It's courtesy of an anonymous family, and they just said, Pastor Carl, if someone comes and spends an hour or so at Meet the Pastor, we want them to have a brand new Bible as a gift from us. So we give them the New American Standard. And I do think it's helpful if you're going to get that, to get it with marginal notes uh, or marginal footnotes. Because, uh, again, I just read to you from a passage from Acts 13. And we saw in the margin, literally, the Greek text read justified. And that was important for the point I was trying to make. And sometimes when there's a play on words or something, while it might seem a little wooden to include that in the body of the language, it can be very, very helpful in understanding a fine nuance, or sometimes there's a play on words that's going place, like in John 21, do you phileo me, do you agapao me, and he uses these different words, and, and he's making a point by the words that Jesus uses. So I, I say all that to say that... Um, you know, you want a modern literal translation of the Bible. And if you want to understand uh, English translations, you might want to take my course on bibliology or at least look on the section of the course. I think it's section six, how we got our English Bible. That might be helpful to you. Certainly there are study Bibles, whether it's the Ryrie study Bible or the Open Bible or the MacArthur study Bible. I mean, there's a host of study Bibles that are available um, it doesn't mean that you'll agree with every per, every note that they write. Remember, the notes are not inspired. Uh, the notes are just uh, human commentary as to how that particular author understands that particular verse. But that can be helpful and useful as you study God's Word. Anyway, we are out of time, but thank you for joining us for another Bible line. And if you have questions, you can submit them to TBL. That stands for the Bible line at WAGP.net. And when your question is answered, when uh, it's presented here, we email you back letting you know that it's been answered and you can listen to the answer. Thanks for being with us. God bless you as you walk with Christ. <laughs>